Welcome, this is Wildlife Biz. I'm Niles McFlower. We have a really interesting show tonight. Uh, the name of it is, I think, pretty clear to me anyway, Something for Nothing, Evil's Plan for Taking Over the, the uh, Physical World. Uh, this applies as much today, possibly, as it ever has, but um, I think a lot has to be explained in order to really gain a fuller understanding of what, how this plan actually works. There's a lot of um, confusion because the plan is protected by a lot of deceitful lies and methodologies that um, are corruptible and corrupting of people and groups. and uh, It's a pretty, pretty toxic uh, methodology. The uh, you've heard me talk about socialism. Socialism is one of the arms of this plan. But it isn't uh, enough just to explain socialism because socialism is really a, a method of execution but not the real bottom of how it works. So we're going to start from a long time ago. Uh, before the Earth was... Uh, we'll say, mostly uh, restarted uh, during the period of time referred to as the Atlantean period. Now, some people say, oh, that's that fake thing about Atlantis. Well, you don't have to buy what I'm saying about Atlantis, but uh, it's interesting to hear about it uh, because it, it's part of this, we'll call it, eventually developed plan. During the Atlantean era, the people on Atlantis were uh, predominantly astral in their thinking processes and in their behaviors. What does that mean? That means that they thought mostly emotionally and mostly they interacted on some emotional level. So how they felt, as we would call it, was more important than how they thought about most things in their life. They were still human beings, so they had a mental body, meaning they, they could think from a, a mental mind to some extent, but the concepts that they worked from were extremely narrow and small. And this is the difference predominantly that I need to address. When you have very narrow, small concepts, the principle of getting something for nothing is very emotively controlled, particularly from the Atlanteans' viewpoint, because the Atlanteans had something called the Kama-Manasic connection, which was never broken by them and became per a permanent part of humanity. What does this mean? It means that they were more controlled by how they thought through their emotional body. We would say how they felt than how they mentally thought, and, and that would have brought them to potentially a level of truth. So they really couldn't tell the truth, tell truth from non-truth very easily. And this was the predecessor to the something for nothing scam. Uh, you, this, it, in order to develop a something for nothing scam, it was necessary that people not be able to think clearly enough to find the truth to most circumstances. 
and to be governed much more by their feelings. Ah, well, that describes the Atlanteans pretty much to a T. There was a saving grace, though. Even though they had that particular part of the equation, so a something-for-nothing scam would have worked for them, and I realize I haven't defined that for you yet. I'm just going in general at this point. But there was something standing in the way of the dark side using the something-for-nothing scam. And that is that the Atlanteans were uh, unusually, we'll say, emotionally independent. They didn't work together on even an emotive level. And so they seldom, uh, if you put 100 Atlanteans in the room, so to speak, and you got, so you try to get them all to feel the same way, way about something, you wouldn't get even half of them to do that. That's different than what we experience ourselves today. And since they were so disparate, is the word, they were so disparate in their emotional senses, in their emotional feelings, in their emotional thoughts, between themselves and among themselves, they didn't have very good consensus. And one of the critical elements to have a something-for-nothing scheme that the dark side would use is to have this over 50% consensus that was not very often the case with the Atlanteans. When they had consensus, which was rare, uh, it was usually the more spiritually developed people that had it, and or in the earlier Atlantean ages uh, before they went dark at all. And in both of those circumstances, there's something for nothing planned by evil wouldn't work because while the people had consensus about how they felt about things, they felt more in loving ways and more in ways at least that weren't trying to get something for nothing, uh, which is what evil needs in order to gain control of the physical world. So that left Atlantis almost protected by their own, we'll say, wanton attitudes uh, about how they felt about things, and each person had maybe a slightly different feeling about everything, and so there was no consensus, much less even a uh, even nearer majority. So this protected them. Now, what happened? Well, eventually Atlantis was destroyed because it was going dark despite the things that I just said for other reasons. Not for the something for nothing deal because it didn't work for them. But uh, for other reasons, they went dark because emotively they started to do and want to do things that were so emotionally unloving towards everyone else around them uh, that they developed darkness that way through their astral nature. Interestingly, they weren't as dark physically as people have gotten today, but they were quite dark emotionally, but not on a level of consensus. So they couldn't, they could be taken over by darkness, but not easily gotten to do the same thing at the same time. And that, so that somewhat left some, we'll say, uh, some lasting benefits that kept them from going completely bad, completely dark, except 
they also were so far down the line in terms of their participation in evil deeds individually that uh, their society was of no longer a enlightened or even potential to become enlightened society. So there was a decision eventually to finish off, destroy the entire Atlantean civilization, even to the point of completely removing, historically and in every way imaginable, anything about them. That's the reason that most people today say, oh, you're talking about that fantasy thing. And, of course, most people don't have a clue about the time factors. Most people today, if they believe at all in some kind of Atlantis, think, it, think that it's somewhere between 3,000 and six or 7,000 uh, B.C. is when Atlantis must have existed. And uh, it really existed for literally millions of years before that time. But, again, there is no record of that, so that's what I'm telling you. You can doubt, of course, if you want. So when did the something-for-nothing plan finally get off the ground and become something other than just a bunch of words, which I haven't explained to you yet. I understand that. Don't worry. I'm going to kind of keep it in that lurch a little bit here. Uh, well, it got started with the next race, and <clears throat> that's us, the fifth race. And who are we? Well, we're a race of people who think much more from the maniacic realm, the mental realm, the mental body, which is in a different dimension in time and space, far different from where we physically live at the present time, and even different from the astral dimension that uh, Atlanteans predominantly come from, with a little mental thinking. <clears throat> which made him human, at least. So, that's us. That's us. We, when did we come about? Well, we came about, give or take, um, around 8,000 B.C. Uh, that's a long, it's like over 10,000 years ago. And so, that's when humans became like we are. And there was an interim period where there were humans that were <clears throat> sort of Atlantean, but they were moving into the first sub-race of, of, uh, of the fifth race, that's us. And so we could say that there was a couple thousand years during the destructive period, although the real severe destruction of Atlantis happened very quickly in a very short period of time. All right, so we have now uh, a new race. And we're in the fifth sub-race of the fifth race today. But the first race was the first sub-race of the first race. And that sub-race was assisted by beings from other worlds. And they came here starting just after 8,000 B.C. It uh, came more in mass uh, around 7,500 B.C. And during that time, they were concerned about what we today call the something-for-nothing plan of evil, because they knew this was evil's next move. And now I'm going to define it for you so you understand what it is. Something-for-nothing is where a person, through their thinking, their feelings may go along with it too, but it's through their thinking. They think that they and or 
some other people are deserving of getting things from other people for doing nothing. They're deserving it because they're in need. They're deserving it because other people may not be perfect and they may have done bad things to people in general. And so people that suffer, whether it's as a result directly or in some indirect way, they have to be compensated because they're suffering. It doesn't matter that they may be the cause of their own suffering. As a matter of fact, the odd thing about the something-for-nothing plan, as evil has constructed it, is that uh, no matter how much you do or don't deserve the something, you're entitled to it just by the fact that you don't have it. Well, where did that come from? And it supplants the idea of self-initiated creation. It limits creation to the creation of a group. And the group, in this case, is of evil. It gives evil the chance, as a group, to make decisions for the something-for-nothing people. And so the more people that they have that are something-for-nothingers, and, of course, that maintain that status by their participation in this, the more evil controls them, and the more evil likes the plan. Evil concerns itself in no way with material things. So this is a plan that works for them in the physical world because they don't care about anything. They don't even exist in the physical world, except rarely. And so for the most part, they just use physical things because that's what gets people hooked into their controlling what do you give up for the something for nothing? Uh, most of your mental thinking and some of your feelings, your feelings of love in particular. You, you have to stop being loving towards others because if you are, you can't be taking from others all the time and that's part of being in the something for nothing crowd. So you got to give that up Obviously, you can't be trying to give to others if you're in the position of taking. <laughs> so you've got to chew. If you're a taker, then you're a taker. Okay? And it doesn't matter what your excuse is for taking because evil doesn't care as long as you're willing to accept that there is no level of truth anymore in your mental thinking. They get rid of that. And they substitute all kinds of half and non-truths that allows them, the dark side, to gain further control over larger and larger groups of people. And then in addition to that, they accomplish this relatively uh, sinister goal by getting people to feel, to feel, only what we would call love by those that they get something from. So they only love people that they can get something from. <laughs> they can't get anything from someone. They don't love them. <laughs> In the something for nothing plan. 
And you might say, well, wait a second, what about families? Well, people get things from their families very often. And so you can have a family that you love and still be a something for nothing. But you can't be giving to people that you don't get something from because that doesn't work. To be in the something for nothing plan, you have to not. You have to not give anything to people who you aren't getting something in return for or to give it. All right. Wow. This is very interesting. Now, this infiltrates families, and it destroys the family unit because the family unit is supposed to be based upon real love, and this is based upon the upside-down nature of love, reversing what love is, that everybody gets something. That's the only reason that they give anything. Wow. And so evil's plan is to... Uh, sell this, and it only works in the physical world. When people die from the physical world, they go on to live in the astral world. The something for nothing plan doesn't work anymore. The reason it doesn't work is because most people get whatever they want in the astral world just by their feelings, and they can create it almost instantly. So it doesn't really benefit the dark side to use this plan in the astral world, which is where they actually exist in the Here, it works great. <laughs> it works terrific because people have very limited ability to get anything. It's very hard to do anything. Uh, there's tremendous amount of forces, and that's the cause of the difference. Astral world has minimal forces compared to the physical world. With all the forces we have here, it's very hard to get anything for anything. And something for nothing is a great bargain if you can get it here. It would be almost meaningless in the astral world, or the mental, of course. Okay, so evil's plan is pretty straightforward. Hopefully, I've explained it kind of uh, at this level uh, well enough to continue talking about it in more historical context, and so I can bring us up to speed for today. It's going to take a good part of the first part of the show just to explain all this. It's important to know the historical side of this, because otherwise... Human history makes no sense, and if our history makes no sense, then our future is dim in some place. We've got to understand our history to understand what the future is going to be, and the present day for that. Okay, so let's go back in time. Uh, 8,000 to 7,000 B.C., human beings are being helped by advanced members of the human society, members of the next kingdom beyond human, we'll call them superhumans, some of whom come from other worlds, because there's very few that are indigenous to this world. I mean, a handful. But there's a bunch that come and leave from time to time. And around 7,500 B.C., a, a large number of them came from several different star systems. I won't go into how they got here or any of that stuff, but they traveled through another dimension. They actually went, came from the mental dimension. Listen to last week's show. <laughs> okay. All right, so they they get here, and, you know, they're, they're here to help. They can't stay for more than usually a century or two or more, uh, not much more, but uh, at a time. And their uh, interactions are through the more advanced members of human society, 
they don't like to directly have a lot of interaction with the indigenous humans because they don't understand who these beings are. Now, they have some, and because of their misunderstanding, they think they're gods, they think they're devils, they think they're, well, who knows, they don't know what they to think of them because they can't understand them. They have these weird spaceships and they run around and disappear and reappear. They do things that humans don't seem to be able to. The more advanced humans there work with them, and they try to, um, for the first race, the first sub-race of the fifth race, which was a, went on for a couple thousand years, they try to build a world in which something for nothing would not be easily put into practice. It was mostly done through what we'll call the political factor, because this was the first sub-race, and the object was to get politics of this race, including the governments, etc., and eventually sub-nations and nations, to adhere to principles that did not promote something for nothing in their laws and in the application of the laws. It was fairly successful, believe it or not. Uh, during this particular time in Mesopotamia, uh, the Sumerians and others that we're familiar with, uh, even prior to the time that we think they existed, and certainly prior to the time that there were Egyptians. Now, this is upside down in our history. We think Egyptians came first because the Egyptians once you to think they came first. The Egyptians came around about the time they claimed. Well, it was around 5,000 B.C., give or take, a few hundred years before that, maybe. But there was, before them, a thriving culture in the Mesopotamian uh, areas. The climate was better for this. It wasn't as desert-like as it is today, by far. It's actually quite, uh, quite wet with a lot of uh, ability to grow and to develop crops, and etc. That system used a political system where the people were given the ability to make most of the political decisions by what we would consider to be vote. Not voting like we have today, more like how many want this and how many want that. And it wants you, if it's split down the middle, can we find a way so each you can accomplish what you want to do, even though they're different, without necessarily fighting about it or having some kind of split in the use of resources. And that worked. That was actually used for uh, several thousand, well, at least uh, 2,500 years, give or take. And it was quite successful. And you can say, well, what the heck happened? Well, what happened was you had the second sub-race developing, particularly in Egypt, but also in other parts of the same area. They kind of intermingled. And the Egyptian part became highly politically separate. Uh, Not because the second race itself is separate, but because they wanted to teach everybody else what they thought was the right way to be. Uh, you could say they kind of took teaching to a 
level of do it my way or the highway kind of uh, thought process. And they became arrogant in their approach to governing. And instead of everybody coming together and coming up with a system that works, even though some people may do one thing and others may do something different, they share the resources and so worked out. And the Egyptians didn't like that at all. And they developed their own religion, their own educational system, which was joined with the religious system. And uh, they developed a priest system, which didn't exist before, except it had existed on Atlantis. And so they borrowed some elements of that from what was remembered, if you can remember, if you can remember anything from that time period, but from what they thought was the way it was. And before long, they became a powerful nation that wanted to control people. Huh? Sound like something we're familiar with. They were the beginnings of something for nothing. They convinced people that the government would take care of everybody as long as everybody granted the government the right to make all major decisions. People said, well, you're going to really take care of me. I'm guaranteed my bag of flour. I'm guaranteed a little place to sit and you know, run over and have a house. And in the beginning, that was the deal. Now, you know, that never stays that way because the dark side, and this is the beginning of the dark side taking over, the dark side <coughs> excuse me, only uses that as a means of getting people hooked in. Within a couple hundred years, they got people doing everything they want them to do, with people usually getting almost nothing in return. And what they do get, they pay ten times for. Let me give myself a little spray in my throat because I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> As they say, you say a lot of words, and before long, you can't say any. Okay, so we have a most interesting scenario going on because we have the the people more in Mesopotamia that were still functioning without the something-for-nothing plan. And we have the Egyptians becoming experts at the something-for-nothing plan. And within hundreds of years, you start having wars. And the war was that the Egyptians wanted to take over and control what was going on in areas, particularly in their case, to the east of them. And they uh, had battles, etc. And countries developed on the other side as a response to the Egyptians doing what they were doing, and but they followed the same something-for-nothing plan uh, to get armies together, and then they developed their own governments and by 4000 BC, you have one battle after another, countries fighting each other, Egypt gradually growing into a monstrous type of place, but not as big as it got by 2500 BC. And it was, uh, without question, the something for nothing deal gone wild. Now, there are other places where this sort of thing's also happening, but you have to go further east into India, and we can see some, some similar kinds of things going on. It's almost the same way. And there's six states 
that are doing this in China. And they're kind of caught up in the same problem. Some of them want to remain uh, free, and others want to uh, develop power over everybody and congeal into one giant country. And eventually, these six supersized provinces become one country. Each one was a separate country of sorts. And several, more than half of the separate countries originally were not trying to have the Something for Nothing plan. But eventually, the Something for Nothing plan was completely sold and completely controlling of this huge country uh, by, say, 3000 BC, we call China. So this is a this is an incredible uh, change in the way things took place, and China continued to do this. By the way, it, it, at first the, the six states were still fighting among each other until near 200 BC, and then after that, they all became part of a single empire. But there, it went back and forth, and had, there were many times when the something for nothing still overpowered because China had this tendency to move in that direction due to its rate structure. The most important part of all of this is that the something for nothing deal is part of our race, the fifth major race. It's the way we are used to thinking and functioning. And the idea is, you know, to promise people that they're going to get something for nothing in order to take everything that they have, especially the freedom. But freedom is illusionary anyway, because once you have lost everything, it doesn't matter how much freedom you really have. <laughs> you got nothing left. Well, you can say you have your thoughts. Those are good. But uh, it turns out that you need a lot of things if you're going to stay free in a world that's so forceful. Uh, if it wasn't so forceful, if you could get anything you wanted by just your imagination, like in the astral world, it wouldn't be a problem. But that's not the way it is here on physical earth. So that was really, really bad. Okay, so things continued to worsen for a very long time. Uh, by the time we get to about 600 B.C., the world has become a mess of something for nothings everywhere, countries everywhere fighting among themselves, and um, conscripting virtually everybody and everything for the sake of force, to use more and more force, and that's what evil's plan ultimately is. Something for nothing plan is a plan based on force. And the more force there is, the more darkness there is. And the more force that evil can employ itself, the more it controls everything in a dimension. This one in particular. So that's what their plan was. They were very successful at it. But there was one small time uh, when it really looked like maybe it could change. And I'm going to tell you about that now. Now, you've heard me talk about... Uh, Cyrus the Great, some people call him Cyrus the Second. His real name was Karash. Karash. Okay, that's that's a Persian uh, name. But uh, for because it was so Greekified, Cyrus was the name that ultimately because the, the T Y thing, the big thing with, with, the, with the Greeks, 
And so he went by that even in a lot of the large parts of his uh, eventual empire. But who is this guy? And what did he do? Well, uh, he was a spiritual disciple. Actually, he was a very, a very advanced spiritual disciple, but still a member of the human kingdom. And uh, his teacher was a was a guy named Zoroaster. Who is Zoroaster? Zoroaster was in the seventh ray uh, ashram of the spiritual hierarchy and was a master of the ageless wisdom for that time. Uh, and since that time, has become a great, greater master uh, by far in the present time, but still under the seventh ray to some extent. Uh, the thing that Zoroaster did for Karash, or Cyrus, was to help him to understand the something-for-nothing plan and to teach him about its sinister evil ways and how to defend against it and create another kind, a new kind of empire that if it were to stay in that venue, the way that uh, I'm going to describe it for you, would overcome evil throughout the world. And the only the only tactic that was maybe iffy was that in order to accomplish this in the world that Cyrus was in, he had to uh he had to win a lot of battles and uh do a lot of stuff that in many ways would be looked at as forceful. Uh he accepted the Zoroaster idea that force was necessary in uh, combating evil in the physical world because if you don't use force, you have to wait till people can think thousands of years from that period of time enough to be able to use something better than that. And so uh, it was a compromise, to say the least. And he, and Zoroaster, and several other uh, masters of the Ageless Wisdom for that period of time, uh, concocted, we'll say, a plan to uh, congeal dozens of individual, we'll call nation-states, uh, into one great empire, the first of its kind in terms of size and the way it, it handled itself. It wasn't going to be a city-state like the Greeks had. And this is before Rome, and this uh, before Rome was anything. And then uh, even Egypt didn't really have the kind of empire we're talking about because what um, Cyrus came to conclude was that only after these individual nation-states were brought together and given a new way of thinking that they're there to help people to grow as individuals, listen to me carefully, grow as individuals and to have personal freedoms and rights plus religious freedom and rights, which could be different than the ones that he had, that Cyrus had, plus had astral freedom and rights, plus 
financially were given the right to be educated, the right to be educated, and to be done, done so without cost to them other than a collective effort such as a collective taxing system, but only for the benefit of all and nobody getting something for nothing out of it because everybody put in almost the same relative amount based upon their income and their ability to pay into the system. Sort of like an income tax, you might say. But it was called an education tax, not an income tax at the time, using their form of the word education. And so they made this education tax that was for the sake of educating everybody. He also made all people free. There were no more slaves. He made all people, uh, all people had the right to leave and go and form their own country if they wanted to, someplace other than where his boundaries of his place were. And he also helped people to uh, develop themselves in numerous ways, and they had rights in terms of any kind of injustice or something that was done wrong to them, and especially by the government doing something unjust to them. Amazing. It sounds too good to be true, right? But it is true. This is exactly what he did. And he's the first person who codified all of this. He wrote it all out, and he had... Uh, he had a team of several hundred uh, writers to make copies of these, everything I'm describing to you, on a form of parchment that would be allowed to be uh, put in various important places because he knew some of them would get destroyed, destroyed over time, and they weren't patented or anything. They did have a seal of his on them, meaning that he... he he was behind them, not that they were enforced by him. And he sent these out to all places that he could, including India and China and, and everywhere you could imagine that he could send it to, places that he did not ever intend to have a lot of direct contact with. And some of it was written in other languages so other people could understand it beyond the language that, or languages that he had it written for the peoples that he uh, had some direct contact with. Amazing that this guy did this. A, a, a huge effort was made to do this. And uh, a version of these same laws and rules and ideas, we'll call them, uh, were including the idea of, of combating something for nothing, which he used those exact words in, um, was eventually procured by Thomas Jefferson. You know, he's talking a lot, a long time after, right? That's a long time ago, comparatively, right? A uh, thousand of years, right? Like two to three thousand years before. Uh Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson used it first to write the Declaration of Independence, personally, and then he gave copies, uh, including his original for a while, 
that he gave out to the people who he he didn't work as much on the Constitution on the uh, original Articles of Confederacy and then the Constitution itself, uh, particularly the Constitution, in which all of these things were included from Cyrus. And he gave credit to Cyrus for it. There's writing, it says, this I took directly from, and he says, he even tells where, where. And I mean, he really gave credit. And he, he made he had copies made, and he gave it to, to the framers of the United States. Now, is that a coincidence that the United States of America comes from this time, from five to 600 B.C.? Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it does make sense, but everything is connected. That's all I can tell you. And so, incredibly, incredibly, the world as we understand it, the world as we know it, came from Cyrus, the, the King of Kings. The reason he called himself King of Kings was because he thought he himself any great being. He meant it in terms of he helped other kings govern better, and he helped them to learn everything I'm describing tonight much, much more, and to adopt educational systems and, and help them to build roads and sanitation uh, areas and every imaginable thing that we think of as modern by today's standards was created by Cyrus. And he went back in time, he did look at all the good things that were done, even 4,000, 5,000 B.C., 6,000 B.C., but he expanded upon them. He made them better. Again, with Zoroaster uh, being his teacher, but he also knew some of the other masters of the Age of Wisdom, and he himself was a very great being. He, He was not a master, per se, but he was a great being. And he came here to do that. That's, that was part of his job. So he was doing his job. And it was a great thing that he did. Uh, his, uh, he had several wives, but the wife that really counts, or he called her Cass, uh, she, she uh, really helped. She helped with the educational part tremendously. She also helped uh, with the development of cities and the construction of whole whole cities from nothing. Uh, amazing stuff. And all this was done, all this was done by a plan, not by force. Everybody thinks of uh, 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 this period as being very forceful or violent. He tended to only maybe uh, once in a while actually end up in a battle. Most of his battles were not battles. He would negotiate a, a, a peace, and people would become part of. They they would not lose anything. They became they kept their kingship or whatever they were of the area that they were supposedly controlling, and they gained things. He he, he actually enriched them more than they lost anything. He didn't take money from them. Actually, he got money. But the thing he got rid of in every place that he took over was a something-for-nothing scheme. He was so adamant against it 
that he actually wrote out those words in his language as being the one of the key sources of evil and that no one should ever be granted something for nothing in terms of a political maneuver or anything else. Everything had to come through people's efforts and willingness to give and not give just to get, but to give even when they get nothing. And he ensured this by making it so people, and even great leaders, had to be giving in many times when they weren't going to receive anything for it. And yet, at the same time, many times to receive things that they never even dreamt they could receive. And so this was his plan. This, this was a guy who really had it all together in his life. And if he had continued to uh, run the system that he created, maybe for another 30 or 40 years, uh, he would have been pretty old by then. But if he did, there's a good chance the world would not have gone the way it went. Because he was quickly being successful in his plan of education. Uh, And he was uh, able to change countries, including Egypt, but not until after his death, uh, that uh, uh, were eventually his son, Cambyses, took over, Cambyses II, took over Egypt soon after his father died, and um, but used his father's plan for Egypt. And so it, during uh, 500 B.C., Egypt had a great period of time when their something-for-nothing scheme was done away with, and the people had tremendous say-so about their life and how they created. And it had a couple hundred years of real greatness, tremendous greatness. But unfortunately, uh, there was was a lack of the brilliance that uh, Cyrus had in his children, and particularly the second child to take over, uh, Darius, didn't do very good. And some of them were just not up to par. You might say, well, how is that his own children do so well? And and that's a long story. His wife died young, and his children kind of resented the fact that when she died, she was angry at him because he wasn't there when she died, and the children picked that up, and so they had some animosity towards their father. And so it didn't work out the way it should have, because it should have been that they would have respected him as the greatest living being, you know, and should have almost worshipped the guy instead they kind of hated him. Cambyses, not so much so, but um, uh, he had his own problems. And so they, between everything that was going on, it just didn't work out. That's such an unfortunate outcome, such an unfortunate one, because look at what this, look what could have come from this. It did eventually. The United States, as we know it today, at least as it was originally formed, was created effectively by Cyrus the Great. That's the best way to describe it, because Jefferson said so. And I tend to believe the guy, although he was a little squirrely himself. And so does Adams, and so do others that used the the writings that Jefferson gave them 
to construct this country. The ideas of this country came right out of what he created in 500, well, earlier than 500 BC. Unbelievable. And yet, very few people know this. Now you can say, well, why is that so important for tonight's show? Well, because we can go back and learn something still by understanding the greatness that could have been and that originally was created. And we can also look what is going wrong today and how we can make things better. And that's what the second part of the show is going to be about. I hope this has made some sense so far because, I mean, I don't want to just do a show on history, but it it has to, there has to be a, a reason all these things are happening. And if you don't get the reason why it's happening, it's going to be pretty hard to convince people that may be listening to this, at least sometime in the future, that uh, this is, there's another way to go than the ones that we've been going at. And that we are making a lot of mistakes today. Uh, the United States is in a tedious position could fail because it doesn't understand the problem of having something for nothing. And that doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, an independent, or, uh, you're, if you're a Republican, or if you're nothing. It doesn't matter because it still is the same kind of problem. We're still dealing with the same issues, and there's just different sides of that that we have to examine. So we're going to do that, uh, give or take, in about uh, two and a half minutes when we come back from break. And we'll do that in two and a half minutes from right now. Hun, what book are you reading? It's a novel, kind of, about romance, love, and spiritual life in general. Kind of a novel? What do you mean? Well, it's based on some real-life experiences and even real characters. Some of their experiences are fascinating and remarkable. I can't put this book down. How come the title is Afterlife Love? That's part of the fascination. This book describes the afterlife in intricate detail and even explains why things are the way they're explained. But how can anyone write about or know that? Some of the characters travel out of body to some places that people who've already died also go to. I'm finding it completely believable because it all makes sense and fits into a bigger picture for me. Hun, what happens to these people? You can read it for yourself when I'm done if you want. Better yet. I'll get my own copy so we can discuss it while we read. Let me see. I'll write down the title. It's Afterlife Love by Niles McFlower. M-A-C-F-L-O-U-E-R. Afterlife Love is available in some bookstores and from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com or 480-966-3132. That's 480-966-3132. Hi, everyone. Since childhood, I've had questions about my life and life in general that I couldn't find adequate answers to. Questions like, why am I here? Why are others here? Does the universe have a purpose? And how does that relate to my life? More recently, I've been wondering what happens when we die, especially the reasons why. I'm more of a doubter than a believer in many things, and answers that include the whys allow me to think and figure out the truth for myself. 
I've been reading a book, Life's Hidden Meaning. This one book contains more answers, including the wise, than all other sources I've read or heard. It's amazing to me that every one of my questions has been thoroughly answered. More importantly, I have found that all of these answers so far have checked out to be true. I hope this message helps some of you in your quest for better understanding. The name of this wonderful book is, again, Life's Hidden Meaning by metaphysician Niles McFlower. Some bookstores sell it. I got my copy directly from the publisher at agelesswisdom.com. Life's hidden meaning may enlighten your mind and bring some peace and joy to your heart. We're back. This is Why Life Is. I'm Niles McFlower. Tonight, hey, we have an interesting show, Something for Nothing, Evil's Plan for Taking Over the Physical World. <laughs> okay, so let's get down to the to the present time, more or less. And um, obviously, things have not turned out the way Cyrus originally hoped for. And the United States was created uh, pretty much along the guidelines uh within his writings, uh, with credit given to him, by the way. There's no, he, it wasn't hidden that they were using his, his ideas. But why didn't it work? What went wrong? Well, there, there were several things. First of all, uh, not all parts of his plan were immediately put in place. First, we had uh, the Articles of Confederacy, which really didn't work, because you got 13 states, initially, and a couple more after, that were actually arguing among themselves, having tariff fights, you can't come into our our state without paying, this crazy stuff. And they didn't have, um, they didn't have free education, which is the right to education was not settled. And, of course, we know that the entire black population, at least I should say the entire, most of the black population was enslaved. Uh, And slavery was forbidden, absolutely forbidden. It was forbidden by uh, Cyrus and by all the sub-kingdoms that, or kingdoms actually, that that were part of this giant Persian empire. Um, And yet, here in the United States, right off the bat, breaks one of the cardinal rules, no slavery. And uh, of all people, Jefferson, who was so enamored with uh, Cyrus's plan, was the greatest hypocrite. Because he had all these slaves, so did Washington, but Washington was a little less of a hypocrite because Jefferson was married to one of them <laughs> as a second wife. And when you're talking crazy kinds of ideas and you know, the hypocrisy was, was just almost, it was terrible, right? How could somebody say something is such a great idea and not live it, not, not even think of making a law about it? I mean, this was unfortunate. It, it wasn't just that that corrupted the United States, but it was pretty bad right from the get-go. That was a huge corruption. Imagine if today, 
today alone, the United States had, had abolished slavery at a minimum on the day it became a country. Okay? And, I mean, even if you, if you go back a little further, it would be even better, but the day it became a real country, the United States of America, slavery is abolished. I mean, how great would that have been? 20 years later, 25 years later, amazingly, parts of Europe did that. Yeah. Uh, and while the United States was uh, had slavery, France uh, was trying to end it as one of the first countries, major countries. Most people are not aware of that, but that's the truth. And so uh, crazy, crazy ideas and things were were happening that were in conflict to Cyrus. I mean, you couldn't, you know, this is like, it's one of the first five or six tenants, and boom, we're breaking right off the bat. What about education? Well, everybody thinks that education's always been free, and everybody went to went to school and all this stuff. The fact is that uh, the idea of there being free education gradually developed. Granted, it did come early, but it didn't wasn't immediate. And each state had trouble enacting it, some of them better than others. Um, and it, it, in many cases, uh, it didn't go very far. I mean, if you, if, if you could make it to eighth grade, you were considered, okay, you've had your free education. So what we think of is like, well, what about high school? Yeah. Now, that wasn't necessarily free in a lot of places. So, I mean... You, and then, as far as universities or colleges are concerned, well, it was a fortune to uh, go to one of those, and many of them would not admit people who didn't have a certain status. Whoa. So we have a lot of problems that are contrary to the very basic core principles that were in Cyrus's uh, plan. And it's unfortunate that a country as great as we think the United States is, was founded on such faulty, uh, we'll say, incorrect and wrong, wrong as far as good, bad type wrong, uh, uh, principles. And coming from people who said, well, yeah, that's the ideal. It would just be something the opposite for now. All right, so what happened? The something for nothing came into play. Let's look at slavery. Start with that. What is slavery? Slavery is the taking from a whole class of people, right? In this case. Uh, and Negro people, their rights as human beings, their labor, their material possessions, their life in general, taking it from them and giving them nothing in return and pretending like they're being taken care of because they're subhuman, of course, and that that's the best that can be done because they aren't like well, of course, that's all evil. It's just pure evil. Everybody knows that, I think, today. But 
some people still don't practice that, do they? But even if they do practice it, uh, we had a long time, a long time to have to endure the effects of it. Far past the Civil War. The Civil War only resolved the fact that the states weren't going to destroy each other over the subject, but in effect, slavery remained really until the 1950s, after World War II. I mean, that, and even then, you know, it's been slowly changing. We have a major, major problem. And what? Where does the something for nothing come from? Well, it comes from the belief that people who can exercise power and control have the right to take from other people and get get whatever they have and tell the other people they're taking from that they're get they're getting something for nothing. What are they getting? Oh well we'll take care of you. We'll take care of you. we're taking care of you because you can't take care of yourselves. Every part of the something for nothing factor is theft. It's theft. When people sign up to get something from the government that they didn't pay into, they didn't deserve, they're getting something for nothing. But ultimately, what's being taken from them is much greater. In every cost, in every time the cost is made, it's evil that's taking over. You're losing the ability to be creative. You're losing the ability to make free choices. You're losing the ability to be a godlike being yourself. And instead, you're becoming a slave. Whether you're officially a slave or not, it doesn't matter. You become a slave by participating in the something-for-nothing plan. And in Cyrus's time, Cyrus described that the something-for-nothing idea was worse than death because it didn't just enslave the person who was being used on, and it enslaved oftentimes the prodigy. It enslaved those that were married to it enslaved everybody associated with and eventually whole cities and parts of countries, etc. That's how it grows. In today's world, uh, under a governmental plan, the a, a, a peak or epitome of something for nothing is a, is a type of government we call, social, we call socialism. What is socialism? Socialism is based upon the word socialize. It means that all the people that are controlled by the government, which is everybody under socialism eventually, all the people are part of a system in which the benefits go to the powerful and the cost is paid to the rest of the people who are considered weak, of course. And they become slaves. Slaves. The end of socialism is always slavery. Always slavery. With the majority, the vast majority of people becoming slaves to a very small minority who are evil. 
of course, the slaves themselves become indoctrinated in evil in the system. And over time, the whole whole system can turn evil, not just those that are running it, but the slaves themselves. And this has been, time and again, the principal path. Socialism is a is a, a way of governing to pr- produce the something-for-nothing game the fastest and most. There are usually three stages in it. The first stage is that everybody gets whatever they need. And they're told all your needs will be met because you deserve them. We're the government will take care of you. Of course, that can't be true because everybody's needs are greater than the government can usually, over the long run, take care of. How do they manage to get so popular and win so much? They do it by selecting the most influential, the ones that are middle class, as the ones that get something for nothing, and by enslaving and destroying the people who have the least amount of voice and have the least amount of wealth and the least amount to say, and they are most disliked as well, so that plays, plays hard uh, into a great deal in it, uh, predisposed hatreds of various types. And then those people are fully enslaved, and then they're eventually destroyed. But over time, even the middle class becomes enslaved, and socialism eventually ends up with very, very, very few having most of the wealth, but oftentimes they can only maintain that with spending huge amounts on force, armies and weapons, etc., to prevent an uprising from the huge numbers of people that are eventually enslaved. So the end of socialism is class warfare and eventually internal destruction. That's the end of it. The intermediate part of socialism is uh, a select number of people wealthy, most of the people poor. And the beginning part is uh, large numbers of people placated with relatively small amounts of wealth and the convincing of people that they deserve something for nothing. They deserve it. That's so it's an educational part in the beginning that turns into a weaponized, uh, militarized ending that is always disastrous. And ends with the death of very large numbers of people and eventually the death of the society itself. Everything dies. Now you can say, well, how does evil win that? Well, because if you die under that system, a significant number of people, more than they ever had before, become evil. And more evil people is what is good, provided you have even more people than those that you can enslave. You can't have too many evil people because there aren't enough people then to enslave, and enslavement is how evil gains power. So it has to have a, a, a large number to enslave. All right, so evil's plan has been uh, used in various ways, with socialism being the most efficient and effective way in the last, say, few centuries. 
before socialism, we had uh, the uh, caste elements of society. Caste meaning like in a uh, different layers of where people have different status, and the people are forced into that status for a while. That was before socialism. It was fairly effective, but not nearly as effective as socialism. Socialism is much faster, and but it reaches its end, which is eventual destruction, even of itself, uh, faster than anything else as well. These caste systems can last for thousands of years, and they have in some countries. So it all depends on where and what system you're employing for your longevity. But even if you last a thousand years, it's still very bad for most people. And in the end, you do get a lot of evil out of it. Not as much as in the purely socialistic system, but it's pretty close to that. And socialism always promises people that everybody will eventually be equal. It's called communism. But it never gets there because communism can't exist. It doesn't. It's based upon a premise that's impossible. How can everybody have everything that they need and to some extent want? Is that really possible? Well, not unless everybody's working very hard to get something, but the system is based upon getting something for nothing. So that doesn't work. So you see, if you have a system where people have to work hard and everybody's putting in, it's we call that capitalism. Capitalism works, but communism doesn't work. Always fails. As a matter of fact, you never get to communism. Socialism is the closest you're probably going to get to communism. You never get to get the whole thing falls apart before that. Communism is like a fantasy. Okay, so we have some interesting elements here on the something-for-nothing plan. And it's all been promoted by evil because something-for-nothing is the ticket for enslavement. It's the methodology. Um, and, you know, you, you have these, like Heimgenot, you have these great authors of tremendous plans in uh, exposing socialism, particularly during and after World War II, that has been just shoved aside and people ignore it when it's it's amazingly explained, way better than I can on a show like this, how evil it is and how it will always fail. Always fail. It's meant to fail in some respects because evil doesn't want people to, obviously, everybody gets wealth because evil depends upon slavery. It depends upon a few enslaving the vast, vast, vast majority of people. Way past the majority. And something for nothing is the ticket to do that. Now, in the United States, I'm going to talk about where I'm talking from. In the United States, something for nothing has been a prom- promoted by the Democratic uh, Democrats, the Democratic Party. Which is a uh, it's a party of people who believe that they're doing good because they're at the beginning of socialism, and they aren't wouldn't even call themselves socialists. They just say that have a 
But since something for nothing is how you enslave people, all you do is you put them back into slavery. So if you have a, let's say you have 45 million black people, right, who fall into the class uh, of, of people who, uh, 45 million of them fall into the class today, uh, don't have as much as people, uh, other black people and other people of, of different color. So, and then the a Democrat will say, well, we've got to bestow upon these people more to make up for that which they didn't get before, at least they being their race didn't get before, because they weren't around at a personal level, but but their race didn't get before. So we can bring them up to the same level. But what you really end up doing is enslaving them, because the something-for-nothing plan only enslaves people. The more you give them, the more you're enslaving them. You might say, well, by giving them an education, is that something they can use? No. Anything you give them, if they don't earn it, they don't appreciate it, they don't use it properly, and they may even resent it and become hostile. That's a very bad outcome. So the something for nothing plan is really evil. And even though the people that may be advocating it, such as some Democrats, are are just ignorant. They don't understand socialism. They haven't read books on that. And they don't understand that something for nothing is the way to enslavement. You want to have capitalism where people have some freedom and right to work for themselves and then give to others if they choose to or do anything they want with whatever they create. But even though they might sometimes be selfish, they might also learn ways to not be selfish. Whereas if everything's given to you, you're never going to learn ways not to be selfish. You're just going to expect more. I know this sounds like, well, oh, you're just a Republican, because now you're giving a Republican viewpoint. No, 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 because no. Republicans who think the same way. That's any it is, this isn't a Republican or a Democrat basis. This is, or, 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 or a Libertarian even. It, it's really based upon the idea of what creates enslavement, of what causes evil itself to grow. And that's something for nothing. Never want to get something for nothing, no matter who you are. Every time you get something for nothing, it's been taken from someone else. Remember that. And the person it's taken from has become an enemy. And they also are more easily enslaved because they have been taken from. But you're also more easily enslaved because you're dependent upon others stealing for you. So you're getting something for nothing, too. The whole system is a terrible, terrible system. Now, the last concept in this something-for-nothing element is to consider the future. How do we deal with a problem of the nature that I'm talking about? Because it is so it's so prevalent everywhere. It's like it, it, it's it's it, here.
here in America, I'm not just talking about the United States, it's worse than almost any place else on earth. People don't realize how bad it is because the United States is fighting with it. But the other countries that surround us, particularly as you go south, are not. They're filled with socialists and filled with people who are some call themselves communists, although they're not quite there because nobody ever does get there. But they, they're all, it's like one after another. They're everywhere. That's not to say there aren't some people who are capitalists in those countries, but it's still very prevalent. Uh, the countries we think of as big, brilliant countries like Brazil, Brazil is a socialist country. And every election is a different layer and type of socialism. And some of the parties are just call themselves communists. They call themselves that. Again, communism is really a fantasy. I don't, I don't really think it's possible to ever achieve real communism because it itself is not real. To get there, you probably destroy the society that you would like it to be. So there's no getting there. The, the path to communism is, is total destruction before you reach it. Okay? Because you're usually employing socialism at very increased levels until it destroys the economy and destroys the people. Venezuela, take a look at that. Whoa. But there's other countries, from Colombia to you name it. They're all like that. They all have parts of this going on. What can we do? We need to clean our own house of this problem. Capitalism needs to be promoted from early on in education. I'm talking about, like, preschool. There needs to be capitalism. And people need to be given all kinds of opportunities to be creative. Creative maybe to benefit from something, from their creativity, but also creative in ways that they share with others if they choose to. That is the real, the real way to make education work. And this is something that should be in preschool. It should be from two years old on, or something like that. Now, as soon as as soon as they can walk. That's when I would be doing this. And it should be very creative. The idea of creation and of capitalism go hand in hand. But creation and socialism do not. Why not? Well, socialism continually is an exclusive issue with fewer people getting more of the take. And people don't create when they don't get back the efforts they put into creation some of the time. Some people will, and some people do, but the majority of people don't. And you just kill creation. So a socialist society becomes more and more non-creative. Not in the very beginning, but eventually, very much so. A, technically, a communist society completely not creative. But, like I said, that, that's more a fantasy because I don't think there is such a thing. Alright, so we have we have some really, really remarkable, we can call it, uh, concerns about how to solve the problems that we have. 
I suggest a new type of capitalism. And let me pose it in the following uh, methodology. I think that capitalism can be employed not just on a creative basis individually, but on a group basis that's still complete capitalism. But that does not work on the idea of something for nothing, where everybody participates in some some companies collectively, but for purely capitalistic methodologies and reasons. Why have these attempts to do this in the past not worked? It's because our society hasn't designed governmental methodologies and taxation methods and other things to allow this to take place. I think it would be helpful to try it. So what does that mean? Well, you could say, well, what about public company? Isn't there a public company like that? No. Public company is really owned by very few people. It's controlled by a board, which is usually oftentimes some of the people that own the company and sometimes others. And very few of the actual workers in the company have anything to do with capitalism in terms of the company. They're employed, but they have very little to do. Sometimes they get some type of profit sharing, but it's de minimis. And it's not connected to their own creativity. So what I'm suggesting is that you make it directly connected to creativity. The more somebody creates in a company, the more they benefit from whatever profits the company makes. Now, that would be an interesting way of doing it. Now, why aren't we there? We have to change laws. We have to make laws that permit this sort of thing to take place. You've got to change the way what we call corporation is created. It's not a public corporation. It's a uh, it's a per, it's the owner's corporation. People that work in the company's corporation. This has been tried a few times here and there, but it has usually not been well thought out and well created, and so usually the companies don't survive. But it could work, and you would be bringing together capitalism with an idea of increasing creativity, not decreasing. Companies, when they start off, are much more creative, are much more expansive of ideas, and beneficial to society than as they age and become just public trust companies where people sit on boards, etc. That sort of thing doesn't do much of anything. So you can't be on the board unless you're creating in the company itself, not just sitting there, well, I think we should do this with the widgets, I think we should do that with the widgets. No, no. I'm talking about you have to actually create the widgets or a new widget. It has to be part of the actual creation process. And that is really a new kind of way of capitalism. It has been tried, but not successfully. And it could be much more successful if you make the laws the right way and you recognize that we're trying to get away from getting something for nothing. And for sure, some companies are getting something from nothing in the way that the laws are designed and their board system is designed and the whole system is designed. That's not fair either. That's not the right thing. But remember, it's very unfair to give people things that they haven't created for, they haven't worked 
working like just working at a job is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about creating more. It's the creators that we have to expand the number of. The more creators there are, the more evil is pushed out and something for nothing diminishes. So I'm looking for ways to do that. And that can be starting a lot of small businesses. They are excellent instruments for getting rid of the something for nothing part and for also developing creativity. But not everything can be done by small businesses. And for that reason, we should be allowed to create bigger businesses on a collective basis and have everybody part of it. The laws don't prevent it, but they don't make it that easy to do either because of the way we treat ownership and taxation and a bunch of other stuff. That could be changed. We can make it different and we can make it better. Now, today, the country that is closest to doing what I'm suggesting is not necessarily the United States. I know that sounds awful because a lot of people want to believe it would be. The United States is actually going kind of backwards in this plan, and there are some countries that are doing it, but not on a countrywide basis. They just don't have that many laws to restrict it, so it happens more often in their, in their existence. We've got to look at this from a standpoint that we've made some errors in the way that we have structured our country. Most of it's been structured to keep the wealthy wealthier and not help people to be, through their own creativity, able to, say, get something. It doesn't have to be financial wealth. Remember that. It could be anything that a person considers valuable. If someone would prefer writing music and getting paid for it, fine, write all the music you want. I mean, but at the same time, they've got to make enough of the funds to be able to support whatever other needs they have. Because, again, they're not in getting something for nothing in the system. The present terminology when people are coming to our borders, like it's happening uh, near the southern border, uh, if I speak, is those people are here to have a better life. So if you're a Democrat, you believe that they have a right, they're entitled to come in and create a better life. But is that really what they're coming here for? Or are they coming to get something for nothing? 99 out of 100 times, they're coming to get something for nothing. There are the rare birds that come here and really do want to create and have shown some propensity and some ability in the past to do that. Those are the people we should let in. But they may be only 1%. So if you got 14,000 people, 1%, 140 people, those 140 could do great things. But the rest of the people, they can't come in because they want to get something for nothing. They're here to take. They're here to contribute. Am I talking about doing a job? But even though we may have enough jobs, if you let people in to get something for nothing, that's all they're going to do, and they'll become further dark, they'll become puppets of the dark side. And it's an endless process. The more you the more you let in, the more it will come. And it will cause the system to be destroyed. Now, I'm not saying this from a political viewpoint. 
I'm not saying it because I think like a Republican or I think like a, a, a Democrat or I think like an independent. I, I'm saying that this needs to be addressed from a purely understanding concepts. If you understand the concepts, you can know what's right and what's wrong to do about all the things that we're perplexed with right now in in this country. All of them. Not just the one with people coming in, but there's many other issues that are similar to this and that we can deal with in the kind of ways that I'm, I'm trying to get to. All right, so what happens then in a something-for-nothing system that has developed to the point like in California, which people pay so much attention to, what what goes on when part of the country has adopted that system? Well, evil will increase exponentially uh, in that environment. Now, what does it mean for evil... It means that people become more and more enslaved. The system itself is enslaving. The people that are in the system are enslaved. And the people who are in the system and have wealth will also become enslaved. Everybody gets enslaved in that system. There are no free people because evil is something other than people. Evil is a thing. It's like a disease that exists in the A-sphere of the astral world. There's a few evil people that come here to rejuvenate their bodies on occasion, but overall, that's where evil really exists. And evil is the, um, the reversal of freedom, the reversal of love, the reversal of truth. It just is much much more than anything, it's a reversal. And so its purpose is to enslave, to take from others so that it has more power and can employ more force than anyone else so that it can control to gain even further power and what it believes to be an immortality that comes from uh, taking from others indefinitely. So looking at California, that is their future. The future of California in the long run, not next year, maybe not next decade, but possibly in 30, 40 years, 50 years, is that most of the people will become enslaved. That's already happening in some places. Most of the people will be tortured and suffer immensely whatever life they have living on sidewalks and defecating on sidewalks to drugs and to illnesses and endless, endless terrible things. And education will become uh, dumbed down to the point where people will only memorize something long enough to be able to say they got educated, but won't be able to apply it or use it in any creative way. So for all intents and purposes, they might as well never have gone to school because it wouldn't make any difference. They can't use it to create anything. If you can't use education creatively, the form of education of whatever is being done is some form of enslavement, some form of trying to control.
control the minds of the people that are being taught. Wow. So California seems to be moving in that particular direction. I'm generalizing that some parts of California are not as severe in this capacity. They tend to be controlled more by Republicans than Democrats, and they tend to not be the major cities. So you have a issue here where maybe people who live outside of a major city or are in some of the smaller cities or towns probably are freer than the people who are not. And, but they're still all going to be affected by a system that's so so terrible that it will lead to the enslavement of anybody and everybody over time. Now, again, I'm talking about decades. I'm not talking about even years. It will lead to the eventual enslavement of everyone here, except for the purely evil ones, who may be the ones also in government. And let me talk about that for a minute, for a few minutes. The reason evil people go into government is because they want the power and control over other people. They don't want to serve other people. They don't want to improve the way of life for other people. They just want to control them. They pretend that they want to do those other things, but if they're evil, they don't want to. They don't do that. Now, there's people in government that aren't evil, and they want to use government to be of assistance, to be helpful. Most of them, unfortunately, at least in California, are not Democrats. <laughs> so you've got a real big problem because the methodologies employed by the Democrat Party in California is pretty much to take from others to keep themselves in power and to gain personal wealth themselves. And if you look at the people that are in that position, the proof is in the examination of, their, of themselves in their own lives. You can see that that's what they do. Not true like that everywhere. Even where there's places where there's a majority of Democrats, it isn't necessarily true. But California and large parts of California are largely like that. So are some other states. So are some cities like Chicago as well. But you you can't you can't just change it by changing the government because this is part of the people themselves. Some of them are in the government, but others support it because it's what they want is their way of life. And it's horrible as it sounds, and it sounds pretty bad. Uh, this is how evil works. Now, remember, these people are not necessarily purely evil yet. I'm talking about tens of years from now, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Then they may really be evil. They or their prodigies may really be evil or others that they know that they associate with. So it's going to take time. But there is a kind of point that you can go to where it's almost a certainty it's going to move in that direction. I think of all the states, California is closest to that point, as big as it is with the number of people it has in it. It's a, it's a real danger. It's a major danger to the survival of the entire country because it's so big in terms of population. 
big in size too, physically, but it's more, it's more it's larger in population. And the people who don't think the way I'm suggesting are in the minority in general, and worse by me by manipulation of the districts, they are deliberately outnumbered to the point where they have very little political control. So it's a, it's a system that's built to get worse and to do bad things. That's a terrible, terrible solution. How, how, where's the answer to that sort of thing? I'm using California as an example, of course. Well, the answer is to accelerate rather than to try to fight against the change. I don't think we can change a place like that with that many millions of people in it already. I think you can accelerate it by passing laws that protect other states from the damage that internally California has. I realize it sounds terrible to the wonderful people who live in California who aren't part of that system. It's just that they are at least potentially looking, it looks like they're way outnumbered, and worse than that, they're outsmarted and out-legislated to the point where they have lost all ability to stop this progression, at least in that state. That's a scary thing about it. So... You almost have to wait for this thing to virtually go bad. And that's the problem. It may not go bad until things are much worse elsewhere from it. So it's a tough problem. It would help if the United States is run uh, by people who really want to do good. But there's enough people in the camp of the people in California, not just in California, but around in different states, that they collectively still can maintain a great deal of control, both in their state and nationally. And so our, the chances of overcoming this terrible situation, at least immediately, is very low. Because we are not really in a position where we can... Uh, make a significant change from what is right now a pretty horrible future. Now, a lot of people say, well, you could have the Republicans all leave California and then there would just be these people when they fail quickly. Well, I agree. There's some truth to that. The problem is how do you get everybody who isn't that way to actually leave. And where are they going to go? Maybe they're only partially convinced of the wrongness of what's going on in California, and they may bring their ways to other places. I'm, I'm talking from Arizona. We don't want people from coming here from California. Because even if they somewhat believe what I'm talking about, somewhat, they still are infected with a lot of the ideas that in California are considered normal. And we consider them, from where I'm sitting, pretty pretty wacky and bad, very bad. So that's where the problem lies. You can't trust that the people who even leave are going to be very good for normal areas of the country. Now, maybe if they were equally distributed, it wouldn't be so bad, but they usually come to the nearby states, and that makes it really rough. 
can be quite devastating in these places. They change the makeup very quickly to a very dark, sinister outcome because they're something for nothing years and they don't know it. They have uh, a plan to increase that that ideation. And no matter what you try to do to stop it, if there's enough of them in one location, they can take over because that's how our system works, right? So that's our danger. It's not a, it's not a simple solution. It's not one that will obviously come from uh, a short-term solution. What about the rest of the world? The United States usually is the example, but I don't know that we're going to be so that way much longer. Uh, there are some parts of the world where freedom is appreciated better, and freedom is the nature of overcoming, of how you overcome uh, evil. Evil is against freedom. It needs enslavement to survive. But freedom causes enslavement to uh, diminish, and it leads to creation and to a system in which the darkness of evil can't survive. So we have some answers, but we're not working on that necessarily where we are. But it could be it could be accomplished in places that we may not even suspect. Polish people have a have a very strong ideation towards freedom, even though that they have for many, many decades and even 100 plus years have been overcome with darkness, because darkness goes after places like that. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing, but uh, they, do, they do appreciate being free. That's a good thing. But they're not the only country. I mean, there's lots of countries that have some elements that may be even stronger than what's going on in the United States right now. And there are states in the United States that are better than others. But you just have to decide that that's where you're willing to live. I don't know how much that will make a difference for some people. There is another problem with the something for nothing, uh, we'll say, attitude. And that is that if people think of their government as being not them, but just an entity, so to speak, who gives out things, they they play the system because they believe that getting as much as they can is their right, maybe even their duty to do so. Most of the socialized Scandinavian countries have this sort of thing going on because they're in the midst of socialism. And in order to uh, break loose from that, uh, you, you need to have enough people willing to not participate in government-planned activities and uh, businesses and systems. And that's that's a tough one. That's a real tough one because sometimes it's almost impossible to stay alive in those societies to let you go along with that. So it's a tough thing. You can't get a job. You can't find a way of making a living, etc. It would be helpful if countries like the United States helped countries like that to develop. Uh, strangely,
of Trump's, the President Trump's uh, plan is actually to kind of do that. He doesn't talk about it. And that's a, that's an interesting difference for the first time, because there's been a lot of Republican presidents who had nothing to do with any of that. But that's not Trump. Yes, he says America first, but he recognizes that if his plan is adopted by every country, everybody rises. Everybody does better. Only the people who are fooled by the dark side think otherwise. Like a zero sum, they believe there's a zero sum. If, so if my country does better, some other country does worse. So I can't help other countries do better because then they would take away from my country. That's nonsensical. Economy is based upon the ability to uh, to exchange goods and services on a larger and larger scale where the benefactors of these services are still individuals and not the country itself, like in socialism. And if you do it that way, that's the maximum way of developing an economy. We could call it like super capitalism or capitalism down to the smallest level, to the individual level. And that is what should be promoted, not only here in the United States, but in all the countries. All the countries should be looking at adopting something of that nature because that's the one that is the most beneficial and really works. Really works. Also included in that is to educate people but using a system of education, as I said earlier, that requires creativity in the education. And as long as people are creative, they can keep going into the education more and more to become more creative and to share with others their creativity. That's a great system of education. We don't have much of that. Really. Most of what we're doing these days is either by rote, or if it's not done that way, then it's done by force, memorization, literally. Rather than just wrote memory and know how to do these things, which you can create small amounts from, then you get to completely memorize everything and do it exactly the way we say, spit it out, and you're done. Go march to your factory and go to work or whatever you're supposed to do. I know it sounds crazy, but that's really the kind of system that we're presently moving in. That's a very good one. You can make a difference no matter where you're listening from, even if you're in a different country than where I am, to think about how you can create something that that gets away from something for nothing, that becomes creative for all, and that it benefits those who choose to create the most, they get the most benefit. It, that fights evil. It pushes evil away. And you can't be arrested by or controlled by evil if you do those things. Isn't that fantastic? I think it is. Now, I think I've, I've got a few minutes left here. I think let me just go back to the beginning of the show. And I want to finish this scenario by drawing our attention to how come Cyrus the Great, the, potentially the greatest uh King of Kings, as he called himself, uh, that ever ever existed in Earth, on Earth, 
he do wrong that might have been more, we'll say, helpful? Well, the first thing he did wrong, this is my opinion, was he continued to believe that the incorporation of other countries needed to have an army of force as a challenge challenge against them, but always try to resolve it in a non-militaristic way. So you bring the army in, but you don't necessarily fight, just to threaten people so that they will talk and see your system develop. He did that in the beginning, and I think it was probably necessary to do it because of the nature of the system. But I would have changed that today uh, by the following factor. Probably about five or ten years before he quit doing what he was doing, and he actually got killed by a straight well, by an arrow. Um, although there's different stories about how he died. I believe that story is the correct one. Uh, if he if he had done the following, he developed a super super educational system where he would go into the countries that he would normally threaten with military action and say, "I'm offering you something new. It's a it's a new kind of education system that includes this thing called capitalism, and people get to create things." That will help make your country better. And I'd like you to become allied with the other countries that are in my empire. Cause, and I won't, don't need to be king of kings with you. you could, if you want to stay a king, you can. But I would like you to operate for a few years doing this. And I'll financially even help you out to at least as much as it would cost me to build an army to go fight you, if not a bit more than that. And I would like us to eventually form a gradual interconnectivity, not just become part of my empire, where you are a king of kings, but I, I, I mean, you are a king and I'm the king of kings, but rather, uh, maybe kings aren't the way to go. We'll think about this as something new called a real democracy but only after people are well enough educated so that they don't give up their rights, don't make the mistakes of voting for the wrong people in the wrong times, etc., so they can get something for nothing, and rather learn about evil and how to overcome that, etc. And I'd like to make a deal with you. Let's make a deal. I'll put up this much, and we'll try out a few parts of your country and see if this system works. And if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, I'll leave you alone. I won't come back and attack you and try to take you out. But we still can, we can still have some kind of interactive relationship even after that, even if you don't want to be part of the system. So I would have been bigger about selling the system if I could be Cyrus then. I'd be bigger about selling the system. Uh, that's just the wisdom I have of today. And, of course, Cyrus has then had great wisdom, but he may not have had enough. He needed more. And, unfortunately, more is hard to come by. So he did the best he could. 
And he was working with masters of the Age of Wisdom, but they weren't that far advanced either. And the world had really gone through a tremendous hassle, uprising, and terribleness. Atlantis was horrible, don't get me wrong, but at least it unified people to some extent. And uh, the New World was anything but that, very, very um, separative. But it was also the nature of the fifth race to be more separative than the fourth, and there were a lot of other factors. But I think that through education, is what I'm suggesting in the second round, it would be possible to do some of what I'm saying. And as a matter of fact, I think that even today it could be done. You know, even a little bit more sophisticated using more technology. But I do think a similar system could eventually be developed. And it could supersede this problem of getting something for nothing. It could get rid of most of the difficulties I brought up in tonight's show, especially what we're seeing in California and other other states in the United States that are turning that way. And it is possible for us to do this without taking over anybody, without military issues, with with a new type of capitalism that joins itself at the seventh rate thing, that joins itself with education so that people look for ways to be creative by being helped to understand the conscious more so that they can create things that grows everybody, not just themselves, but everybody grows from it. And we will push evil right off of this planet. I mean, we can push evil back to the A-sphere where it can do bad things, but it can't do much. And you know what happens is eventually, if you do that, the evil beings there crack because they don't get enough power because they can't get it from enslaving others outside of their realm, and they crack. They can all crack very quickly, actually, if they get no power from any place, because they fight among themselves, and they will crack themselves. Isn't that wonderful? I think it's a great idea, anyway. Well, we're running out of time. I can't believe that we're running out of time. It's coming to a close. But I I hope this has made some difference here, because the thing to me is that we have a chance to get rid of something for nothing and get something for everybody for by being something greater than they actually have been. Change people into greatness. Help them become greater themselves as individuals and collectively will push evil out. You can't do this by everybody banding together and trying to give everything to people who don't deserve it and who also will be corrupted by it. That's all a misnomer. It's all craziness invented by people who are either dark themselves or very ignorant and dark. Okay, we're out of time for right now. I hope this show has kind of made a difference. And until next week, this has been Niles McFlower for Why Life Is.